All right, I want to start off this morning with a question. It's a question that we posed on social media this week. Uh, maybe you've seen that and been thinking about it. Here's the question. Can people really change? Can people really change? You know, when you think about old sayings that you grew up with, they seem to indicate the fact that no, people cannot change. You probably heard people say, well, a leper can't change his spots or a zebra can't change the stripes. Once a cheat, always a cheat, things like that that are kind of phrases we grew up with. But then there is today and you have uh, science and brain health and trauma therapy and behavior development and they say, well, people change all the time. You know, you're constantly changing as a child, even as an adult, you're morphing and changing and growing and stretching. So which is it? Uh, do people not change or do people change all the time? Maybe, maybe the better question is this. Can people change themselves? Can people change themselves? And I'll just say, coming from uh, my experience over many years being a pastor teaching the Bible, I really have come to the conclusion that people can, can, uh, can arrange the furniture, rearrange kind of the furniture of their life. You can kind of deal with the externals and maybe some habits and things like that in their life, but they can't really change the firewalls and foundation of their life, the core of who they are, that that kind of change has to come from outside of themselves. That really only God can do that. Only God can change profoundly, substantially uh, a life. And uh, we see that all through the Bible. You really see example after example after example of, of people that were really one direction and they had an encounter with God that dramatically, profoundly, substantially changed the core of who they are, their identity and the way that they live their life. And probably the best example, or at least one of the great examples of that is a man named Jacob. Jacob is uh, a man who was profoundly changed by God. And we're going to be studying Jacob, the life of Jacob, over the next five more weeks, uh, diving into his story, really kind of unpacking who is this person. Now, you may be saying, Greg, why are we getting into Jacob? I mean, why, out of all the people in the Bible, all the characters of the Bible, why are we stopping to really pause and look into the life of Jacob? And there are a couple reasons. One reason is that Jacob is clearly an important guy, all right? He has got to be in the top 10 as far as important people in the Bible. Uh, after all, it's Jacob that fathered the 12 uh, sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, in fact, you may not know this, but there are 10 Psalms in the Bible that uh, where God is clarified or God is declared or God is, God is described as the God of Jacob. So he is an important person in the Bible. Another reason why we're studying him is because though he is so important, very few people really know his story. He is, he's kind of a flyover kind of character. You kind of start with Abraham and you kind of fly over him to Moses and skip over him to David and then you just kind of move forward and many times we skip over the, the, the story of Jacob. In fact, a little confession from the preacher, this is the first time I have ever done a series on Jacob. So you're getting all fresh stuff, folks. No warmed over sermons here, all right? Good stuff, all right, uh, on Jacob. So. We need to know more about him. But I tell you what drives me to Jacob is this. Um, Jacob's story is your story. Jacob's story is my story. 
You're going to find this more as we go through his story, but Jacob's a mess. Jacob's got issues. Jacob is a, he's got lots of hangups. He's got a lot of past stuff, a lot of baggage. He's failed multiple times. He's hurt a lot of people. And yet God continues to pursue him and love him and use him. And listen, if there's hope for this guy, Jacob, then there's hope for us, right? And so there's a lot of encouragement that comes to us through Jacob telling his story. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, over the next several weeks. So let's just go ahead and get started today. Get your Bible out and open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Genesis 25 is where we're going to land uh, this morning. And we're going to jump right at the beginning uh, as Jacob is being born. We're going to kind of tackle some of these early things we learn about him. Before we jump into Jacob, though, let me give you a, a thought. Let me give you an idea. Let me give you a, something to hang your thoughts on as we got not only through, go not only through this Sunday, but also through the Sundays following. Maybe a thought we're going to come back to over and over again. And here it is. Only God can change a life for good. Only God can change a life for good. Now, that statement kind of has two sides to it. Only God can change a life for good, meaning that once God changes a life, it, it, it stays changed, right? It's, he's changing it for good. But it also has that other meaning that only God can change a, a life that's wayward, a life that's wicked, a life that's selfish, and change it to reflect the goodness of God. Only God can do that. Only God can intervene in our life and really change the firewalls and foundations of our life. And you're going to see that played out over and over and over in this story of Jacob. So let's just kind of dive into it now. Uh, chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 19. This is the word of God. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian from Badam Haram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. Now stop right there for just a minute. You start kind of hearing names, Isaac, Abraham. Some of those may ring a bell to you. If you grew up in church, you kind of heard of Abraham and Isaac going up on Mount Moriah and God told Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And uh, of course, God stopped him there. And there was an offering made from a ram that was caught in the thicket. But that very place, Mount Moriah, is actually now the location of Jerusalem. That Mount Moriah is Mount Zion. It changes names to Mount Zion. The very place where Jesus Christ was crucified, where God crucified his own son, sacrificed his own son for us. So when we think of Abraham and Isaac, we probably think of them in that realm, but now in the story, it's much later. Abraham is dead. Isaac is a 40-year-old man, got married when he was 40, it took Rebecca to be his wife, and they are without children. And this is a big deal. I mean, any, any of you that have suffered through infertility, you know how painful infertility is and how emotional it is. And, uh, you know, Liz and I walked down that road. We, uh, we took us eight years to conceive our first child, for God to give us our child. And there was a lot of prayers, and a lot of tears in those eight-year period of time. Well, Isaac and Rebecca waited 20 years. 
Can you imagine waiting 20 years? And it says that Isaac prayed for his wife and uh, I'm sure he prayed for her multiple, multiple times for God to intervene because they knew that only through her having a child could the promise of God be fulfilled that a nation could be born and a Messiah could come. And so they were praying in the will of God, but, but they were waiting on the timing of God. You know, that's something for us to think about. Maybe that's just for you today. That you may be praying in the will of God, but you also have to wait on the timing of God. It, God is at work. And even as you're praying, God, I know this is your will. God, I'm praying for this. God, I know you, that God has his timing and it's perfect. And we need to learn to wait on him in his perfect timing. And so they did. They waited on the Lord. And finally, God answered their prayer. And at the age of 60, she got pregnant. How would you like that, ladies, to be pregnant at 60, right? Well, it wasn't easy. I can tell you that. Uh, let's just keep reading. Look at verse 22. It says, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. That's really important. Underline that. The older will serve the younger. Verse 24, and when her time had come to give birth, there was indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. Yuck. And they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So his name was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So they prayed and sure enough, she got pregnant. And uh, it says that she started feeling this tumbling inside of her. If you ever, ladies, had children, you know what that feels like. I remember the first time I saw uh, uh, our first pregnancy and, and they were moving around and I saw something go across Liz's belly. I said, what is that? She said, that was an elbow. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. I think she had a cracked rib from one of, one of them punching her in the rib. I mean, there's a lot going on. That's what's happening in here. These two are wrestling inside of her. She's like, what's happening? And so God reveals to her that, hey, you've got two nations in there. Not just two kids, two nations. They're going to be separated. One's going to be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Now, this is really important. Because in the culture of the time, it was the older one that had the preferred position. The older child had what, a, what they call a birthright. And the birthright meant, went to the firstborn. And the birthright included a, a double portion of inheritance uh, of the family. Uh, not only that, they also uh, were ones that experienced God's blessing, God's favor on them in a unique and special way. And they would assume one day when their father is dead, they would assume the spiritual leadership of the home. That was the birthright. That always went to the firstborn. But here what he's saying is, no, 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 I'm doing something different here. I'm going to flip this thing around and, and the younger is going to be first and the second is going to be first and, and the older is going to serve the younger. This is, God has done this a couple of times in the Bible, but every time he does it, this is something unique, something special. God's intervening in a unique way. And so he, God told her, I'm doing something special in this place. So she has these children, and uh, they are born. The first one comes out 
look at it, red looking, covered with hair, like a fur coat. Does that remind you of anybody that maybe you've seen before? I'm just wondering. <laughs> okay, no, 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 it was not, take that off. It, it's, not, it's not Elmo, it's Esau. His name is Esau, all right? But yeah, he's a hairy dude. In fact, the word Esau means hairy. And they looked at him and said, man, he's hairy. That's a hairy, that's a hairy fellow right there. And then coming out from behind is Jacob. They named him Jacob. He's grabbing his brother's heel. Yaakov uh, literally means may God bless you or may God protect you. But the word Yaakov kind of sounds like the word heel. Uh, or it can also be understood as one who comes from behind, one who trips up from behind. So this Jacob character was somebody who was going to come up behind and trip up. It's kind of got this idea of deception, this idea of catching you off guard, that kind of idea. And that's exactly who Jacob became. His name was fitting to him. So already we have this story being set up. There's a foreshadowing already being set up. I don't even have to tell you the rest of the story to know this, that, that God's at work in this family, and yet we've got a brother against a brother. One is moving forward. One is going to try to catch him up, trip him up, manipulate him in some way, and this is going to create massive conflict in the future. And so already we're starting to see this foreshadowing, the story being set up of what will happen, that God is... God is at work uh, in it all. Look, uh, keep reading. Look at verse 27. And when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had the taste of wild game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Did you get that? So they grow up. They're very they're two different guys. One guy is, you know, a hunter, outdoorsman. He's more at home crawling around in the woods. Uh, Jacob is more at home uh, at the house, hanging out with his mom. One is more impulsive. One is more thoughtful and introspective. One guy wants to hang out at Bass Pro. The other guy is hanging out at Office Max. All right, they are two different kinds of people. And they're butting heads like that. And you're going to see this over and over and over. That God is setting them up. And they are two different kinds. And, and what's interesting here, it says that Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. And so you start to see this favoritism, this pairing up. And really there's a fault line that's running right through the middle of this family. And it's when this fault line gets pressure, this thing is gonna buckle. This family is really in trouble. Let's keep reading, look at verse 29. We see it right here. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. His nickname was Edom, which means red. And Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me first. Uh, so he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And so Esau despised his birthright. You want to know how different these guys are? This is an illustration of that. Here is Esau. He comes in out of the woods. 
He's, you know, he's hungry. He's famished. He comes in angry. He's, he's hangry, I think is probably what he is. You know, right after the last service and you're like, get me to a restaurant right now. Just like your kids are when they get out of school. Somebody feed me now. All right. That's Esau. He comes in. I'm going to die. And there is Jacob over there stirring up some Texas chili. Mmm, this is good. And he said, what, what do you got over there? Give me some of that red stuff, man. I, I'm going to die over here. And here's Jacob going, all right, I'll I tell you what, I'll, I'll cut a deal with you. I'll sell you this good stew. Man, this is the best stew I've ever made. I'll sell you this good stew for your birthright. He's like, what? Well, who cares about birthright, man? I'm going to die right now. It doesn't matter. Uh, sure, whatever. He goes, no, you swear. Okay, I swear, I swear. All right, here it is. And it says he plopped down. I just envisioned him plopping down on a rock and he just eats it and with all the stew dripping off his burly beard. And then he just kind of crawls back into the woods again. What we see here is really the worst of both men. The worst of them. This is the worst of Esau because Esau is so impulsive, right? He just comes in, all he thinks about is what he wants in the moment, what he feels, what he needs in the moment, what his hunger drives him to in the moment. No forethought, no really thinking about ramifications of his actions, none of that. He just acts in the moment. He's so impulsive and he has zero spiritual interest. He just doesn't care about the things of God. Doesn't care. Oh, blessing? Who cares about that? Spiritual leadership? Didn't want that anyway. You know, I'm happy to give that away. He just has no spiritual hunger. And what you're going to find is that's going to send him on a trajectory far and far away from God. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about Esau. In Hebrews 12, 16, it says that he is, quote, immoral and ungodly. Immoral and ungodly. But it's also the worst of Jacob. Because do you think that Jacob just so happened to be there cooking that stew? This is all coincidence? Uh, no. He had been studying his brother. He knew him very well. He knew exactly what he would do, where he'd come out, how he'd act, how hungry he is. He's heard it many times before. And he was setting him up to play on his impulsiveness to get what he wanted. He was a manipulator to the core. He was selfish and he didn't care that he was taking something from his brother that he would long to have later. He didn't care about that. He just knew what he wanted and he knew how to get it and he was gonna do it. Both these guys are a train wreck. Do you understand that? Both of them are. So let's push back from, from this story now and let's just say, what do we learn uh, already from the life of Jacob? And we're just kind of introducing him today. What do we learn about him? Let me give you a couple of things, okay? The first thing we learn is this, that God can work through a less than perfect family. God can work through a less than perfect family. Usually we think that everybody else's family is perfect and ours is the only one that's not, right? We get on Facebook, everybody's smiling in their family. They're all on the Dean's list or on, you know, the principal's A student on their family. They got the bumper sticker on the back of their car. I mean, everything's perfect on their family, right? Our family's the only one that's messed up. And the truth of the matter is everybody's family is messed up. Welcome to First Collierville. Everybody's jacked up, all right? They may look great on the inside. That is not the way that you dig a little into any family and you will find all kinds of problems. You would have thought that this guy had the perfect family. After all, his granddaddy is, is Abraham, his daddy is Isaac. It's like your granddaddy being Billy Graham. You know, I mean, it's surely this is a perfect family and yet you dive into Jacob's family and it's messed up. 
brother against brother, constantly fighting, constantly bickering, hating, manipulating one another all the time. Mom and dad are not communicating. Mom is always undercutting dad's authority by going around him and manipulating the situation. Dad is clueless and shows favoritism from one son over to another. I mean, it is, it is mess. They put the fun in dysfunctional, okay, folks? This is a messed up dysfunctional family. And it may sound like your family. The truth is, I mean, you may have grown up in a family just like that. Mom and dad didn't communicate. One was undercutting the other. Maybe your family was divorced. Maybe it wasn't and you think they should have just because of the chaos and the drama. There's always some drama being kicked up. There's always some problem. Maybe you've got a sibling that's not a follower of Jesus and you are and so they're always throwing that up in your face. Oh, well, you're the Christian. You should be more loving. You should be this, you should be that. How come you're not taking care of this? How come you're not doing that? And it's just constantly stirring underneath the surface. You see the phone call come in. You're like, I don't think I'm gonna answer that, all right? Because it's always turbulent. And you may get to a point where you think, you know what, God can never use me because God only uses people from nice families, from perfect families, from clean, put together families. But that's not true. I mean, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a perfect family. And in fact, if you just kind of go back to the Bible and I don't have time to do it today, I can show you time after time, God almost always uses people that have skeletons in the closet and problems at home. If you're waiting for your family to be perfect before God can use you, then you're buying into a lie. God can use you no matter how dysfunctional or crazy your family is. Now, let me just kind of lean in on a subject here just for a second. This is not a rabbit I'm chasing. I've actually been intending to address this. There are some that teach what they call generational curses. This idea is that I'm, I'm dealing with a struggle right now in my life, and this is evidence of a generational curse that really went from my, my parents and their parents before them, their parents before them. And so if I'm dealing with the problem, then we're really, this problem is a evidence of a generational curse that goes back three or four so-and-so generations. So I've got to identify where this curse started, and I've got to um, intervene and so I got to call that curse out. I've got to do all these kind of maneuvers to somehow break the chain of generational curses. This is a common teaching in some circles. And really the, um, the evidence most likely pointed for this is Exodus 20 verse five and six, which says this, uh, God is speaking about idolatry. He says, do not bow in worship to them, meaning idols, and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me and, and showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And they say, see, here we go. The father's sin laid out now through the third and fourth generation, punishment to the third and fourth generation. But here's what you need to understand about this passage. First off, this is a specific uh, people he's talking to and a specific sin. The sin was idolatry. The people were the people of Israel that were going into a land filled with idolatry. The second thing you need to understand about this is that this passage is, is clearly indicates that the children are complicit in the sin of their father. In fact, the, the ancient Targum, that is the Jewish commentary on this passage, says that this passage is talking about, quote, ungodly fathers 
and rebellious children. That is, that their fathers led them in idolatry, and now they're practicing idolatry, and now leading their kids into idolatry that are practicing and so on. So it's not like the father's sin is being punished to innocent people. These are, these are children that are practicing what their father has taught them to do. And by the way, there are other passages in the scripture that clearly forbid a child to be punished for their father's sin. So what do we make of all this? Here, here's, here's where I'm coming from. While certainly there are habits and patterns that are sinful and destructive that can influence the next generation, but clearly we see that. You, you may have a father that beats his wife, and so then Johnny grows up seeing that, and so he thinks it's okay to beat his wife. Or you may have even issues of unfaithfulness or adultery, or you just name your sin. You can see how growing up in that environment by the influence of the father, that could open the door for the child to also practice those things and, and suffer from those things. But these are not issues that we have to identify the source of generational curses. This is an issue of the fact that we are all cursed with sin. Every one of us. We all are cursed with sin. It is a part of our fallen nature. And the way that curse is broken is through faith in Jesus Christ. For example, in Galatians, it speaks about this very directly. In Galatians 3.13, it says that Christ broke the curse of sin by becoming a curse for us on the cross. And when Christ died on that cross, all of our sin and the curse of that sin that separates from God was placed onto Jesus and he died to pay the penalty for that sin. In fact, that's why uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is what? Gone. The new has come. So what we need here, uh, listen, we don't need to confess a generational curse. What we need to do is confess our need for Christ. What, What we don't need to do is some kind of incantation to break a curse, which sounds a little more like voodoo than it does Bible. What we need is to confess our need for Jesus and surrender our need to Jesus Christ. And he is the one that makes all things new. In fact, Romans 8 says that the whole world, our whole cosmos is under the curse and the weight of sin, groaning, saying, oh Lord, come back, come back. And when Jesus comes in Revelation 22, 3, it says he will put the curse away. Now folks, that is Good news with a capital G, isn't it? And so listen, folks, we don't need to be worried about, oh man, I got this generational curse and I gotta, I gotta figure out where that started. No, 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 no. You just need Christ. Christ makes everything new. Christ is the bondage breaker. Christ is the one. You call on him. You ask him to come into your life and forgive you. He breaks those bonds of the past. He makes all things new and you can start over. You are not bound for the sins of your family. You are not bound to relive the habits of your daddy or your mom. You are free and you're new in Jesus. And I hope that that encourages you today because some of you are bondage breakers. Some of you that you've seen some generational things and and you're you're starting new and and God is doing new things in you and you're setting a new pattern of faithfulness and praise God for you. God is gonna use you from generation to generation because of your influence. So God can use you even if your family is less than perfect. Here's another thing really quickly. Uh, God pursues you even when you struggle. 
God pursues you even when you struggle. Jacob struggled with a lot of things. Jacob had some good attributes about him. I mean, he was smart. He was, had, in, had ingenuity, you know. He was for, had a lot of forethought. But when those traits turn dark, when they become selfish and sinful, then he was a manipulator and a deceiver and a conniver and a liar, you know. And you're going to see this over and over and over. It's like, come on, man. And we're a lot like that. We have our positive traits, some things that, you know, some of you are great, strong leaders. Some of you are good thinkers. Some of you are good verbal skills, but yet you can allow those to hurt people. You can allow it to become selfish and used in difficult and dark ways. But here's the thing, no matter how wayward Jacob became, God never gave up on him. God just kept pursuing him and kept pursuing him. You're gonna see in his story how multiple times God would just show up in his life to call him back, call him back. And that tells us something about the nature of God, that while God could quickly judge us and would be right in doing so, that God is a pursuing God. And listen, maybe you're in a season of your life where you're, um, you say, man, I've hurt a lot of people and I've done some things that are that have hurt others. Maybe you can look over your shoulder and see the trail of bodies behind you of people that, that you left because you wanted what you wanted and it had to be my way and it had to be this way and, and you said things that hurt people and maybe the way you hurt your parents or the way you hurt others to get, step on them to get what you wanted, you didn't care how it affected them. Listen, even then God is pursuing you to draw you back to him. You know, Jacob probably thought that there were just four characters in the story. It's mom and dad, Jacob, Esau, just four in this crazy, messed up, drama-filled family. But there was actually a fifth person in this story. That's God. God is the one that's intervening. God is watching. God is hearing. God is speaking. And listen, you may think, well, there's just my little crazy messed up family and my little crazy messed up world and I've got all these issues and I've got all these things I struggle with. And yeah, you do. We all do. But there is a fifth person in your story who loves you, who is sovereign, who is even now drawing you close to him. Listen, never... Never confuse... God's silence with his absence. Never confuse that. Sometimes you feel like God is absent. No, no, he's not absent. He may be silent in this moment, in this season, but God is present. And you say, well, how do you know, preacher, he's present in my life? Because you are here and you are listening to this. And God is through that drawing you to himself. One last little thought kind of in conclusion. Another thing we learned from him is that your choices determine your path. You know, Jacob is going to make a lot of choices in his life, going to send him on a path far from God, far from his family. In fact, next week he's going to make a decision. He's going to make a choice that's going to be so bad, it's going to split the family right down the middle. His life will never be the same again. It's going to be the unforgivable sin against his brother. It's going to break his father's heart. It's going to shatter the family unit. And it sends him on a path. Esau is equally going to make decisions. They're going to send him on a very destructive path. But listen, 
even when we go our wayward ways and we go on paths that seem to be, gosh, almost to the point of no return, at least we feel like it, that God is able to intervene in that wayward path and turn us toward himself and to good. In fact, it will be Jacob's uh, son that will one day make this statement. What you meant for evil, God used for good. That's the kind of God that we serve. A God that can intervene in our wayward path and turn us back to him. So let me ask you, what path are you on? Listen, only God can change a person for good, but I do believe that God can really change a person for good. I've seen it time after time. And maybe today you've been on a wayward path, but maybe it's time to stop and say, you know what? Yeah, I got a messed up family and yeah, I've got a lot of issues and yeah, I've made a lot of decisions that sent me down the wrong road, but I don't have to stay there. That God can change me. God can change the direction of my life. God can use me. But it starts with you acknowledging that and turning to him. This last week, I was, I'll close with this. I was just in my regular daily Bible reading and I came across Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a Psalm of David, the king of Israel, when he had sinned against God. And he writes this, he, he makes this whole confession and there's one part that stood out that I underlined it in my Bible. And David said this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, anytime someone prays that prayer, God, just create in me a clean heart. God, just change me from the inside. He always hears it and he always moves. Maybe that's the prayer you need to pray today. Why don't you bow your heads with me? And uh, I'm just gonna give you an opportunity to do that. You know, you may be here today and uh, you say, you know, I just feel like I've, yeah, I feel like my family's, my past, my family I grew up in was a mess. Sometimes I feel like a mess. I think the path that I'm headed on is not, not good and I know it. Listen, only God can change you for good. But he can change you for good. If you call on him. The good news is while we were far from our sin, wayward from God, that God sent his own son, Jesus, to die on that cross. And on that cross, he absorbed and took on himself all of our sin, all of our waywardness, all of our rebellion and our conniving, manipulating selfishness. Every wicked thought, every wicked deed, every wicked word. And Jesus suffered to pay for it all. He was buried. He rose again on the third day and he offers you a new path. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm, I'm the way home. I'm the path back to the Father. I've made a way for you. But you have to take that way. You have to choose that way. 
So has there been a moment in time when you said, yes, Jesus, I want to go your way. Yes, Jesus, I need you. Please create in me a clean heart and forgive me. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And I'm going to ask you just a minute to raise your hand if you want to pray to receive Christ. Listen, some of you, God's working right now. I mean, he's touching your heart. He's pulling you. That drawing feeling is the spirit of God saying, now's your time. This is your moment. And as you lift up your hand, you're saying, Lord, I acknowledge my need for you. It's me, Lord, that stands in need of a clean heart. It's me, God. Here I am. I'm not going to run anymore. God, I need you in my life. Please see me. Please forgive me. When you raise your hand, you're confessing your need for God. And if you raise your hand, then I'll lead you in a prayer right where you sit to trust in Jesus. So if you're here today and God's moving in your heart, then right now, just lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. Lift it up. You know God's already working in your heart. Just lift it up and say, Pastor, all right, thank you, thank you. All right, thank you, thank you. Anybody else, pastor, just pray for me. I need to be right with God. God's moving in my heart right now, I know. I need Jesus in my life, all right, thank you, brother, thank you. Anybody else? Oh, pastor, pray for me, I need Jesus. Okay, all right, put your hands down. And you can just pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. I know I've gone my own way. And I cannot save myself. I cannot change myself. But I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again. So I'm asking you now, create in me a clean heart. Wipe my sin away. Remove it from me as far as the east is from the west. Today I choose to trust you and follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for your love and for forgiving me. Father, we just thank you today for your word. It's so rich, it's so current, it's so relevant to our lives. And Lord, we just uh, are just reminded again how much we need you. Left to ourselves, we are a mess. We're hopeless, wayward, self-destructive. But because of you, Jesus, you have made all things new in our life. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to live this week as loved sons and daughters that you pursued and bought with the blood of Christ. Help us, God, to walk in a way that pleases you, to follow you in every way, to be quick to forgive, quick to share what you've done for us, quick to invest our lives in others. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women that reflect your character and your love when we go back to work, when we go back to school. Lord, thank you for your grace in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen.